again to Core Ideas, paleolimnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. And as always, we're your hosts, myself, Adam Jaziorski. And Josh Seenpont. Thanks for coming back again. All right, Josh. Uh, what do you want to talk about today? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Any thoughts? I, I, you know, they, uh, I think we could follow the arc of contagious ideas a little bit deeper. And one thing I've been thinking about a fair bit uh, while working from home um, is basically about open relationships within paleolimnology. Oh, dear, Adam. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. Get your mind uh, out of the gutter. We're talking about open access to scientific oh. research and data. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Come on. This is G-rated, buddy. <laughs> Well, it's not, though. It's a podcast. We can say anything we like, uh, especially because it's our podcast. But it's an interesting topic. It's an important topic. Uh, and it is a topic that very much fits into the vein of a contagious idea because it is something that uh, has rapidly increased in the scientific literature of all kinds, uh, broadly, and paleolimnology just being one example of that. So a really good choice, I think. And what... What made me think about it or like something to look into a little bit more was just while working at home and the need to use a proxy access um, or VPN through the university to access journal articles. And I don't think we mentioned this last time or not last time, um, a couple episodes ago when we were looking at citations, but to even like open web of science, which we talked about a fair bit, um, you need to have a subscription or a uh, access to it. Uh, yeah, through your through institution. some institution. So, you know, to, to even look at what we were talking about in there, you know, required uh, being a paying access. Yeah. And when we're talking about open access, we're talking about like the, the complete reverse of that. Um, just general access to the general public on some level um, and to research data or yeah, specifically research data is what we're talking about today. And this is very much a contagious idea. Uh, and it really has its roots in the, I guess initially I was thinking it would be in the early 2000s, but earlier than that, going back into the late 80s, 90s, and just, you know, the birth of the internet. Um, and is now, I don't know if you call it a household term, but a very widely known term within science. And I'm pretty sure most people, um, when you say, open access, they have a rough idea of what you're talking about because it's got uh, close close ties to the idea of like open source or free software um, yeah. and all the various political and philosophical connotations that comes along with it. Yeah, and it's something that I, I would imagine is even, uh, people may not recognize it as much in the popular media, but related to this whole COVID-19 thing, there's so much uh, free scientific information that's coming out that is intentionally being put into an open access framework by publishers, even at the really large uh, publishing uh, houses, like uh, up to the nature publishing group kind of level, uh, specifically so that people have access to that information on this really important topic outside of the paywall. Uh, 
and really bringing this into the fold and being a topic that, you know, people are coming to realize that, hey, you know, it's nice to have access to scientific data uh, and not having to go through a university uh, institution because you may not have it or it's just really challenging to do uh, is a real benefit. Oh, I think so. And um, like a key thing that we probably should define early on even before we define what we mean exactly by open access, is just a little bit as what does free mean? That's and a really it's a challenging question. It is. <laughs> an interesting one. Uh, and especially within English. And this, uh, for anyone familiar with the concepts of free software and open source, uh, be a very familiar um, distinction um, because there are two concepts tied up in the single word of free in English. And I guess you could be talking talking about gratis versus Libra. So the question of whether something is free as in beer versus free as in freedom. Uh, which no, is free a, as in speech, uh, yeah. the other way, the way I think about that one, yeah. Um, as a distinction. And so if something just has no cost, as in free as in beer, here is a beer, you drink it, the end. Um, versus yep. free as in speech um, and able to do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Uh, or the, the, the thing. And yeah, which, which from a software perspective, people use every day. You know, people are accessing free software. People are using browsers that are free, but they may not be open in the same perspective as some of the others. And some are. Yeah. yeah. And um, one thing I, while doing the research for this, I particularly liked was uh, there's a free beer out there that plays on this whole idea in that it is a free beer in terms of the Libra connotation of free. So their logo and their recipe are all uh, under some sort of Creative Commons open license. But it seems like a, just a big play on words to be able to have free beer, $5 as like their sign yeah. or whatever, or whatever I, the price would be. I um, love it. I think yeah. it's a great idea. If someone buys buys you one of those, like you, you now truly have free as in speech beer. Yeah, that's great. And uh, and it's so nerdy. That's so nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> but to pull this back a bit to research and science, um, the distinction comes in like even if you have the paper or access to the paper for free, so you can read it for free, um, you're not necessarily able to then. Uh, free to share it with other people. And this is where all licensing kind of things coalesce into what can you do with something that you've been given for free. Mm -hmm. And and I guess one thing to think about is that, you know, from an academic perspective, this is something that's always a bit of a challenge because as the author of the publication, you can share reprints of it and things like that, but it's still what might be completely behind the paywall of the publishing house. And this is sort of the stages along that towards truly being able to do anything with that, that document when it's done. And okay. So I think it's time to drop a long definition in and what exactly we're talking about, um, in terms of open access. And, uh, there were a couple because, um, there were, I guess a couple of different movements, meetings, conferences that laid out exactly what the idea was behind open science in the early two thousands. So I'm going to give here the Bethesda statement on open access publishing that dates back to 2003 and was one of several conferences that tried to define what this meant in terms of open access versus open journals and uh, 
how they defined open access and with respect to a journal would be free, irrevocable, worldwide, perpetual right of access to, and a license to copy, use, distribute, transmit, and display the work publicly, and to make and distribute derivative works in any digital medium for any responsible purpose, subject to proper attribution of authorship, and from which every article is deposited immediately upon initial publication in at least one online repository. So it's a yeah. mouthful. Like these, it's not it's a, a simple concept. I don't think there's a word in there that's less than four letters. Uh, there's some some serious ideas in there, but it gets to the the heart of the idea is that you have access to the article for free forever. You can alter it. You can you can do things with it and and alter it as long as you provide that key attribution of the authorship. So where it came from. So you can build on it. You can make derivative works. Um, you can do it digitally. And just all, all the only catch is, you know, if you do use it or make it or distribute it, or you have to say where it came from. Yeah. And I think that's a, a funny, that was a fairly long definition, but that's the shortest of the ones that are, that are, that came about at this time period in the early 2000s when, as Adam said, there were a few things kind of coming together in order to uh, establish what these ideas really meant. Uh, and I think, it, you know, there's a lot of legalese kind of information in there, but it is fairly straightforward to think that, you know, these are all the things that you might want to do with that work. Because what was happening is at this point, you know, this is a uh, re- reaction, I guess, to like the the Internet had gone through its was already well into its proliferation. We're past like, you know, the dot com bubble uh, collapsing at this point. So the internet was well known and we're at the point that, um, a general transition was going on at least in academia and to, you know, PDFs were as like the medium of science, I guess, and being distributed was like on the uptick in a big way. And there was just a lot of questions of, you know, it's one thing if, you have a subscription to a particular journal, you have that issue, you give it, lend it to other people at coffee break, um, and then theoretically they give it back to you, but it's still only one. But once everything went digital, all of a sudden it's like, here's a paper. Whether or not you know, to, I'm an author is irrelevant to the actual discussion because all of a sudden um, here's a copy for you, a copy for you, a copy for you, and a couple of million of my closest friends But when I hosted on like, the university um, yeah. uh, website. And so there was a uh, legal, I don't know, quagmire. Yeah, it was a question that, that really didn't need to be asked uh, before that in, in wide-scale use. That was the time period. You know, people weren't going to the stacks to, you might make one photocopy of a paper from a journal at the library stack. Or if you were an author, you might get a, a stack, you know, six inches high of, a hundred reprints that you could mail to all of your, the people who asked for it. But when they became portable documents, uh, digital copies, then these kind of ideas really had to come to, to, uh, to the front because copyright was, was an important, uh, component. And the publishing houses obviously wanted to maintain their copyright over selling, um, access to individual articles, which has become more popular. Probably maybe, I don't remember it being as, big of a thing sort of in the early part of uh, digital publishing. Maybe it was there and I just didn't pay attention to it. 
Yeah. But uh, certainly selling institutional licenses is where they get their huge amount of uh, capital for those companies. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I saw, like, you know, when you're trying to log in from home, let's say, the you can access this article for, like, $19.99. I don't or know. you can rent it for 24 hours yeah. for 6 bucks or whatever it is. I don't, I, I'm not sure that that was a, a common thing. Uh, the main thing you I know, really remember from that ago. time period was like the, the as stuff became digitized, there was like a moving wall of time as they like as older stuff gradually became digital. So for sure, I definitely remember a key thing of like I want to pull up this article and say oh, it's not not available online, and that, that yeah. distinction of like when I like I'm you know I'm not old, but I'm old enough to at the beginning of my academic studies it was all about the book stacks and going sure. going and then that transition happened kind of in between me finishing undergrad to being well into my masters of the journeys to the book stacks became less and less necessary yeah i know what they would be old for only certain journals that hadn't gone online yet i remember uh, the Arctic Institute of North America produces the Arctic Journal, and they're in a small. They're not associated with any of the publishing houses. They were quite late in putting all of their old back catalog onto uh, onto an online portal. Uh, so I remember that was probably the last time I went to the probably the Queen's Library at, at this point to look for a specific journal article because it just wasn't available. Uh, yeah, because I, I remember an interaction I had with my supervisor, uh, John, during my PhD, where I was maybe like two years in, two, three years in or something, and I made a question about like, next time I go to the, to the library um, to do some photocopying, and I'm like, I've never been to the library to do any photocopying <laughs> since I came to Queens, and it just, it was a, a I think he was- One of those moments, like, he's like, oh- what? This has been so many hours in Douglas Library. Yeah. I used to study in that library. It was a great place to study. Yeah. It's no, an undergrad. Yeah. So it was the same, same thing, but it was not. At that point, I was no longer, um, uh, you know, maybe a couple of old papers. One of the nice things, actually, I think John had a great collection. Like he had Arctic, that journal I was talking about, going back for many years. He didn't actually have to go to the library because people had back catalogs of those journals. Um. But yeah, moving on to to from that definition and the ways in which you can, uh, co I guess, codify the different open access types right. or yeah. flavors or Call things like classifications. that. Classifications. Uh, to fit within these different licenses. So are we talking about free as in speech or is it uh, free as in beer or is it some variation in between those different uh in between those different categories and they've they've i'm not sure who they are that arrived at this series of different colors in order to uh, codify what those are but they exist uh, and they're not intuitive colors because they go from things like gold to green to bronze and there are some in between there but they do correspond to these different licensing of, or these different open uh, categories yeah and so when you're talking about open access, like a gold rating or open access gold uh, would mean, you know, it, the name is a play on like the gold standard. Um, basically, everything is cool. It's like uh, you can access it for free. Um, the authors can do whatever they want with the, with their own level of self-archiving. And the, the license is a very, very, very open one. 
one step down from that would be uh, Open Access Green, where um, the publishing house uh, allows self-archiving, and that's where you get into things like archive.org. Um, this, uh, uh, everyone out there, uh, a few minutes ago when we were discussing the, the like order of things we were going to talk about, uh, my mind may have literally skipped a few seconds of time as I comprehended and tried to integrate the fact that archive.org, which is, it's uh, not arcsiv. Yeah, it's not arcsiv, Josh, <laughs> uh, which is HTTPS, uh, AR, what, when you're typing it into a browser is a small X, but it should be a capital X. And really by a capital X, it should be the Chi uh, Greek letter and then IV.org. So it's archive.org. And when Adam told me that, I actually sat quietly in my seat for almost 20 seconds. <laughs> it's like a nerdy joke that went over his head for like the last 20 years. And it just, uh, that's not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen. I'm a smarter guy than that. I thought so anyway. Um, yeah, so that was a great revelation. And I hope at least one other person of our 27 regular listeners uh, may be joining me in, in this revelation. So continuing, sorry. Yeah, so then um, so archive.org is a place for like self-archiving. I personally never used it. Um, I think it really lends itself more to like the physics and mathy type uh, engineering elements of science, where mm -hmm. you know everything's produced in latex and yeah. uh, the uploading and the file sizes are all uh, much smaller than and, uh, and a lot of things that we deal with. People put uh, preprints up on on that uh, service as well, and postprint like archived in the green sort of open access sort of style. So there's quite a bit of information on there, not just after publication, which would fall into the sort of green open access model. Uh, there are preprints on there as well, but it is a, a great. I guess uh, one thing that uh, I mean, is just defining those terms. So a preprint would be um, a copy of the document that you've sent out to peer review. So it's a work in progress. It's yep. been submitted, uh, but it hasn't been reviewed. A, but it's really become common to see, especially again, going back to this COVID sort of thing, uh, you know, newspaper articles and people like really uh, discussing data that aren't reviewed, yeah. which is interesting. And then uh, you have the postprint, which would then be you have gone through the peer review, um, but it's still in um, you know document form. Let's say I don't know how how better to describe it. Uh, yeah, it's off. It's not paginated. It's not set into the journal. Yeah, it's not gone through the typesetting um, right uh, setting. So it's not like. And it, Sorry, and it may not have been copy edited as well, which is another often final stage after the scientific editing kind of component. So there may be minor changes after the post, uh, the post print, before it goes to the published version, which is after it's been uh, uh, copy edited and it's been typeset, and in the journal's format, given page numbers, and all all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the nice things about maybe before we move on from the green open access is that all of these. Uh, self-archived type of things can receive uh, DOIs, digital object identifiers. So they can be citable, even though they may not be linked to either a journal yet or to the actual journal's publication. And that's really important because in order to be able to cite something in your subsequent work, and, and given that reviews can take quite a long time currently, 
some data that are really rapid uh, communications you want to be able to access quite early, uh, especially if you're following up your own research. And so having that citable DOI in a self-archived preprint or even postprint uh, option is a really useful tool. All right, so moving on, having defined the concept of open access, I guess uh, the next step would be to talk about how does it actually affect scientists? And I'm not sure we can actually single out paleolimnologists in particular. This is a pretty broad topic compared to a lot of stuff we normally talk about. Although I guess the last couple of episodes have been pretty broad in scope, and this is like continuing the the trend. But uh, the way that I think about it is in practical terms, uh, in terms of accessing the research, it really just comes down to does the reader pay or does the author pay? Yeah, it's unfortunate that that has to be the distinction, but uh, uh, there we are. Uh, does the reader pay, maybe not individually, but through their institution if they're associated with one, or do they pay uh, individually for the article? Or if it's uh, certain open access journals, I'm not sure of any that are true, they're free to the authors. Uh, do they pay an APC, an article processing charge, uh, in order to publish it in that journal? Uh, if it's all open access or to make that article open access if it's in a journal that traditionally is paywall. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, because it's interesting when you kind of start thinking about the actual business model of scientific journals, at least in the recent past. I guess if we go back to like the founding of the societies, it would have been, you know, a newsletter equivalent that went out to the members of past research. But in the last, you know, I guess, post-war period, the idea is that scientists give the journals the product, their research, for free. You sign off all your um, rights associated with the uh, the work. Other then, than your continued use of it and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, in terms of the, its publication, you cannot be published again. Yep. Um, and then the journal companies then sell that uh and then the researcher doesn't have to worry about any businessy crap. They just move on. They publish the stuff out so that it can be read, and they don't worry about, you know, the cost of ink mm -hmm. or printing, printing press, yeah, exactly. or distribution or anything like that. Any business side of things or any of the costs associated with it, they just get it out in there, go back to the lab or wherever, however the research is performed, and continue. Um, and because in terms of readership, uh, no individual scientist, you know, would be going, oh, I'm like losing out on a bundle here if I just sold my papers individually for 1999 to the general yeah. public. I'd be, uh, so it was comp that has all been turned on its head now uh, by with the open access idea. And so instead, the journal gives out the product free to the general public or whoever it may be, but you know, in full, full open access, general product, general public. And it is the researcher that pays for all the costs in advance that do go into typesetting, uh, distribution, and all those kind of things. And the, yeah, paying the staff who do all of those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion ongoing about the, the business model of uh, the journal publishing and how these are some some of the largest companies on earth in some ways 
that, uh, you know, basically the product is given to them for free. The people who handle not all of the work, but much of the work, work for free, the reviewers, the editors, uh, and then they sell it for a, a decent amount of money to every university who wants access to these journals. And then they bundle them with all sorts of journals. So if you run a couple of them, you have to buy all of them. It's like cable TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting difference as you move to this open access. Now, you're still paying to publish your own work that you did all the work for. And you paid for all the actual research and the student salaries and all of those things. And now you have to give this company uh, this amount of money in order to do all of that. Uh, and some of them are, are quite expensive. Uh, others are a little more reasonable. Uh, but there's a, a pretty pretty big range of what those APCs are, depending on the journal. So yeah, it's an interesting, it'll be interesting to see sort of moving forward 20, 25 years, uh, where we find ourselves on this spectrum. To see how it all shakes out. Yeah, because I'm not sure we've we've, uh, arrived at what is a sustainable final situation for the whole thing. No, yeah, because we're definitely, you know, we're 15, 17 years into past open access being defined, there are, you know, it's a well-understood concept. There are many open access journals out there, but we're still working through the whole con, what the knock-on effects in terms of funding implications are, Yeah. Um, you know, because research labs are often working on incredibly tight budgets. So having... Yeah, grants are, grants are incredibly competitive. Uh, you know, you can only do so much with that money and setting aside a fair bit in order to make your your articles open access is is a you know that that's the equivalent like in a grant recently we just put in you know it's it's equivalent to a year of a student's salary to say you're going to publish all of these in gold standard uh, gold open access like that's that's a hard trade-off to have to make like do i want to fund another student for a year or be able to pay them for that year and or do i want to make all my articles open access. Yeah. And then especially, um, you know, in terms of, I guess, there's both sides of this coin, in terms of um, conceptualizing how big a chunk of an annual budget this would um, represent would be, on the one hand, in a very small lab, if you only have one or two students, and then you go, okay, well, instead of having two students over the course of this grant period, I'm going to have one and a half and then worry about a second one in the next grant period and save the money for funding uh, for um, publication costs. Um, Or then in like a very large lab where you have like 10 to 20 students. And then all of a sudden, if you want to make everything open access, you know, very quickly, uh, you're in like, you could be breaking into six digits. Easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a challenge to to fund that um, for anyone, even people who are bringing in enough to have a lab of that size, uh, and and then as you move to certain uh, requirements. So here in Canada, it is now a requirement that fund uh, projects which are funded through the Tri Council agencies, so SHRC, SEER, and NSERC, which is the one that aligns with paleoclimatologists generally, uh, that the data must be published in some way that is accessible to the people who are paying for it, which is the the public. So that might be as a preprint or as a uh, um, postprint version of the article, but there is a requirement of it. So there's a push to make this uh, more the case. 
and to to get into that framework and i think it's a great idea like i i'm all about trying to figure out how to do that but uh sometimes just paying out the apc is not always possible yeah um and then when you do some of the reading going forward um you almost wonder you know if you if you could hop in the time machine and skip 25 years down the line will there eventually be the instead is it just going to be like um you know the money moves from the right hand to the left hand so instead of uh the universities paying um the the journal the journals for access that just ends up becoming a straight switch for the journal uh, the universities paying a lump sum based on the size of the university to the journals for publication or something on that level yeah. like it ends up becoming a real ma- it's going to have to eventually go on to a macro level because the micromanaging of it is so complex. And, yeah, uh, I could I could see that that's possible for sure. And then I guess, and then, and then it becomes a case of what changed. And I guess the main one is the general public got access, and then um, uh, science became a lot more accessible in developing countries. For for, for example, that would be unable to um, uh, necessarily get the uh, the, pay the, the current. Get get past the paywalls as they currently exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and for some, you know, all uh, credit to certain societies or journals and things like that. Sometimes there are lower uh, fees associated with different geographic ro- locations, just as there are with um, you know paying your membership dues and that kind of thing. So there are some uh, options there. But yeah, no, it it can be a fair bit of money. Um, and if you don't have it, you. A lot of the people listening are probably uh, associated with an academic institution, so you you know you kind of um, get used to having access to all of that information. But when it's lost, it is an enormous uh, privilege that we have to have access to all of those different bits of science that we're interested in going back all these different years. And it would be very nice if that wasn't the case, if that we could figure out a model that um, allowed people to have access to all of the information that yeah so that the cotton like i have zero interest in the business side of things so um you know just getting rid of the barriers but allowing the journals still to be for all the typesetting and all that kind of stuff and to be done and the journals still exist and just have everybody access them yeah so yeah That'd be it'd be great, and it's for so what a wonderful world it would be. Yep, with a much higher pay grade than my own to sort out. I guess one one thing we've not touched on would be um, that the access doesn't just refer. I guess you did mention it in passing. It doesn't only refer to the actual articles themselves. There's the actual data, uh, access to the data is a thing as well. And more and more you're starting to see especially um, uh, references to uh, open access to code. Yeah, which is huge. To be able to rerun the analyses yourself uh, in something like R um, if the actual code that they use to generate it um, is posted up. But uh, how much experience do you actually have yourself with open access journals? Uh, 
I have published, I, th- I think, two papers that are entirely in that are in open access journals. So the entire journal is open access. Not, I don't know that I've ever paid or or been part of a project that has paid uh, to have an open access article within a journal that's a, under a traditional paywall. So I don't know how that process works. I, I might be wrong on a paper or two that I'm kind of in the middle of a big author list. So I would say that it's just the two articles I have. So I have a paper that's in PLOS one. Uh, oh, you changed your tune. Yeah. I always called it PLOS one. And Adam, this is my second pronunciation. This is really a, a, a podcast episode about pronouncing uh, strange words uh, and, and how Josh has been doing it wrong for some time. Uh, so I had I had a paper in PLOS One, uh, which is one of the, I wouldn't say it's one of the original, but it's sort of a, a fairly early um, open access journal. Uh, this is the Public Library of Science. Yeah, and PLOS One is actually not the earliest of their journals. It only came out, I think, in 2006 or 2003, uh, whereas the Public Library of Science has been doing open access journals of different kinds. So they have different journals like many of the big publishers do. Um, but they're all open access, uh, and they've been doing them for, for many years. And then I have an article in, uh, nature communications, which is one of nature's open access, uh, journals that has fairly high APCs associated with, uh, with those articles. How high? I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, uh, several thousand us dollars, I would say. Yeah, no, it's, uh, so I myself have never published in a, open access journal, but I definitely have seen the checkbox uh, in, I guess, whatever you want to call it, standard journals of, um, you know, would you like to pay $5,000 to make this an open access article? And I've, I've declined every single time. Yeah, as most people do. Um, uh, rightly so. So I just quickly typed in and the APC currently for nature communications is 5,380 us dollars, uh, which is a lot, a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, that was an article that we weren't, you know, we were happy to, to pay that fee one. It's a good journal, but it was also an article that we wanted open access. So we kind of went into it because it was part of a project that was really had a lot of community, um, interaction with, uh, related to, uh, uh, movement of uh, the wood bison in the Northwest Territory. So we thought that there might be some, you know, we, we would want to be able to share that article in any way we could. Uh, so we kind of went into it thinking that, yeah, this is something we would we'd be interested in um, incorporating into this. And uh, so that was fine. But so I would say I don't have a great deal of, of uh, um, experience in that, but there are more and more of them, uh, journals that are all open access. So we did we talk about facets? Uh, I think we did in the scientific societies because it has been adopted as the um, journal of the Royal Society of Canada's science um, division or directorate, whatever they're called. And they are an open access journal. And I recall not long after our PLOS One paper came out, having a discussion with uh, someone from NRC Press um, who contacted me through John Small to ask about sort of the um, 
sort of the process of how working with PLOS One had been because they were just starting to get facets off the ground from a, a planning perspective and they wanted to talk about the uh, the the way in which the system had worked at the this, author experience. Yeah, the author experience at sort of what is, I, I would say the PLOS One is sort of the like maybe best known of the truly open access journals. It's sort of, I wouldn't say the gold standard because that's mixing terms a little bit, but it's a really well-known one, a really well-respected one. And uh, so they were interested in that. And and a few years later, facets came to be. Yeah, because I think uh, this is something that is coming up more and more. And we're really, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg. It's only going to become a bigger deal moving forward in terms of open access. And... Um, I think it's pretty interesting that, you know, outside of journals, the journal component of open access, like one of the projects I'm involved with right now, like has a huge public access components. So the Lake Pulse survey, like one of their um, deliverables, I guess would be one way to describe it. One of the things that are going to produce, like once the actual project is done, is a web portal that all the data from the, the surveys will uh, be open to the public. So on one level, you know, individual Joe or J&Q public uh, is interested in a particular lake. They can click on it and pull up the data that the survey pulled, produced about their particular lake or the lake that they go to fish on or whatever it may be. Um, but also that it will just be publicly available for data mining to build into bigger projects going forward. Which is huge because there will be so much information uh, information. Um, that comes out of that project to be, you know, in many ways, that's more powerful than being able to read someone's interpretation of one tiny little section of data. The availability of large data sets to be used is becoming more and more uh, important in science because I think we've come to realize that, <clears throat> you know, uh, you spend all this time collecting these data, and of course, you have important things to do, but you can never fully access and integrate that into other things. And so to be willing to share data. And, uh, and it's really expensive to collect these data. We, I, I don't know. I feel like we need to get as much out of them as we can, especially for a project like, like Lake Pulse, which is absolutely massive. Um, uh, it just seems like that is, is somewhere that we are getting to. And, and it's a great change in science that's happened over the last however many years. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I'm become, it's one of those things that, as it snowballs, it'll become more and more powerful. I guess one thing when I was thinking to try and bring this all back to paleoluminology when we're thinking about open access and how much um, di direct involvement I've had through like my as a graduate student moving forward, it was it was incredibly limited. I knew what it was, um, but I'd never done it. But then it was also limited, especially paleoluminology um, in terms of a standard stratigraphy. Like if you digitize a graph, you can pull out the data, um, you know, without getting access to the data. And this happens fairly commonly. Um, but as the data set grows and grows and grows, um, you know, the ability to access the data directly becomes more and more and more important if you want to do anything further with it. And, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and so I think going forward, again, hopping into that time machine, um, I think ourselves 20 years in the future, like just playing on uh, um, the idea that uh, Back to the Future just turned like 35 years old over the weekend or something, of jumping into that 
Yeah, they were talking about it on the radio this morning when I was uh, uh, in the Uh, car. And jumping in the future and like going and talking to our future selves going, can't believe you spent an hour talking about open access. It's like, what are you going to do next? Spending an hour talking about breathing? It's like, obviously. Maybe. It's important. And I hope so. I think that'd be great. I hope this is redundant even quicker than 35 years, which now I realize that was the year I was born. Uh, (laughs) Um. Yeah, no, I, ho- I hope so. I think that would be a great uh, a great legacy of science and science publishing to be able to sort that out. Uh, we'll see, I guess. Um, but as you know, as we s- see it right now, uh, I think we're arriving at, at something that's workable, and and uh, there really is a shift. Like the the there's good evidence that articles that are open access get cited more. They get uh, passed around in social media more, which is increasingly a really important way of sharing science. Uh, and because of that, when open access articles start to be better uh, accessed, it can only result, hopefully at least, in uh, a greater push for people to, you know, it's an incentive to actually uh, begin to work in that in that framework. I would hope yeah. anyway. Yeah, I think so. I think it's very much, you know, the snowball is definitely rolling and we don't know how much bigger it's going to get, but it's going to get bigger. Agreed. Um, I did, I, as I was, uh, as Adam was talking in the last section, I quickly looked up what the current uh, article uh, processing charge for JOPL is because uh, in the thing, so that's a Springer journal. So it's related to all of the Springer it would be considered a hybrid journal, not a fully open access. And uh, in a developed country, it would be three thousand two hundred and some odd dollars uh, U.S. So a little bit cheaper than Nature Communications, but still a cha- fair chunk of change. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, and labs operating on a shoestring bud- budget. You know, three thousand dollars is U.S. You know, yeah, the U.S. is one of like you know. It's, it's not it's not sitting in petty cash let's say certainly not yep that that can that can fund uh, a whole lot of microscope slides if you're making uh making making slides or good part of uh the maintenance for a microscope yep all right so i think uh that's a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure if we uh, intended to incorporate anything we had talked about uh, talking about creative commons a little bit um, but I think that might be a separate topic a little bit beyond that. The Creative Commons, just very briefly, because it is linked to this, because some of those journals like, for example, Springer Open articles um, have a Creative Commons license. They're based under this. The Creative Commons, very briefly, is sort of a nonprofit organization that is uh, set up to deal with the legal uh, challenges associated with sharing information. Uh, broadly. So they have a the really important thing that comes out of their work and they do lots of interesting things, but is to have these different licenses associated with uh, different types of data so that you can have basically the things we've been talking about. You can have data that are in the public domain, which is often the case for government produced information. So if you are produce, say you're trying to use a, a figure that you like and it's produced by the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, those are completely public domain. You can do anything you like with them. You can edit them. You don't even really have to attribute them in theory, uh, though you should. 
And that can go to different levels that have more restrictions associated with them. So these would be what the Creative Commons licenses are. You can have licenses where you just need to give credit to the author. You can have a license that you give credit. Uh, and if you adapt them, you have to share them under the same term. So you can use my uh, image, but if you use it, you can't make it copyrighted. You can only share it under the same licenses and they go on from there. You can have ones that are non-commercial. You can have ones that are not allowed to be modified. They're all different uh, licenses that they structure. And so when you have, say, uh, an image and a common way to share uh, pictures is through these Creative Commons licenses and you can search on their website, which is really useful. Uh, you can say that when I give you access to this image, I'm giving it under this Creative Commons license. Uh, so if you go on Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Commons, the vast majority of those images that you see in all of the different wikis are Creative Commons licensed under one form or the other. Most of them, uh, the, the levels that allow some sort of uh, changes to be made. So very briefly, that's what the Creative Commons is. Yeah, that's almost something we explore into in, a, in more detail in the future. Yeah, it's something I've, I've been thinking a fair bit about related to my teaching because uh, I'm interested in kind of making some of my information uh, in that and videos and stuff that I'm doing, especially in this online teaching world, uh, Creative Commons licensed. And by doing so, I want to make I've been really uh, careful to make sure that all of the material that I incorporate is also Creative Commons license. So I'm not using copyrighted material, which I mean, I try to think about all the time, but this is really important for that if I'm to license my own stuff. So yeah, it may be an interesting topic for future. Yeah. Um, so I'm just spitballing. Because then, so you may be interested in, you know, whatever course number is material going out onto the open in internet. But is the university necessarily uh, on board with that in terms of, you know, sending everything out into the ether, anyone can do whatever they want with? That's a really good question. And I think it depends on the university. So some of them, uh, well, some universities claim copyright over uh, their faculty's lecture material. So they have copyright uh, to it. Uh, that does exist. Uh, it's not as common at some places. In Canada, that or sorry, in at York, that's not the case. So we retain our own copyright to our lectures, effectively, uh, and we're given pretty broad uh, scope to do what we want with them, including if we want to make them uh, uh, accessible through the Creative Commons. And, and there's been a lot of information that's been put forward in this new online world to uh, to do that if we want to. So I would say that that probably depends at the institution, but uh, we found good. Good luck with that. Okay. I'm sure there's a big continuum in terms yeah, of huge. freezing beer and f versus freezing speech the whole way down on yep. a whole other domain, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting combination of uh, copyright law combined with academic integrity and academic freedom and all these different things that I'm very just briefly have a few minutes to sort of read on the side about, but uh, find quite interesting. So you maybe ask me in a few, uh, in a few months and I'll have more to share. Those topics are definitely my passion. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Not until you get into it. Okay. But no, I, otherwise I think that was a good, a good little segue, a good little jump into, uh, into this. And hopefully we'll, we'll come back to this and have something more to share in the future. Sounds good.
All right. So really time to wrap it up now? Let's wrap it up. Okay. So uh, thank you for listening once again. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can write us at the show website, coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Um, but more likely, you'll probably want to get in touch with us via Twitter. Uh, what's the handle again, Josh? It's at coreideaspaleo, P-A-L-E-O, the American spelling. And uh, is there anything in the mailbag today? So uh, I, we, we had a couple of uh, likes on, on Twitter. Um, and then I had a nice email though on another topic. But uh, shout out to Yella Faber um, at the University of Waterloo. He was wrapping up his studies there who uh, said very nice things about, uh, about the podcast. And so it's nice to know that someone's out there listening. And we're glad that you are. And uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. We appreciate it a lot. Um, and I had one interaction as well with a listener, let's say, um, and we've got a correction, uh, um, so on the last released episode, uh, about citation counts, we made a fairly big error in terms of our, the highest science yeah, cited who was paleo that- paper. That was a good. That was a good point. I only just remembered you sent this to me. So by the time this episode releases, it won't. There'll be another one out there. But uh, who is it? Uh, if if you're willing to say, who is it that pointed this out to us? Because uh, you never told me that. Uh, it's Karsten. Oh, okay. Um, and that's why I'm saying I put "listener" in air quotes because I don't think he actually listened to the episode, but I <laughs> talked to him about it, and he's like, "No, you missed one." And it's like the uh, um, Oliver Hyrie paper on LOI has way higher, higher than a thousand citations. Well, we weren't like, saying that was the highest ever. It was just the highest of the author. So I don't think we were wrong. Um, but it's a very good point that that is a paleo paper that is exceptionally well cited. And I hadn't thought of it. And when you sent it to me, I'm like, of course, that one is so well. I mean, it's in everything. Our mystique of authority on any paleo topic is now kind of like shattered, I think. Did we but have thank, a mistake? No, we, we have absolutely none. But we uh, appreciate it being brought to our attention, and we're sorry for uh, not bring, not catching that at the time. In our, yeah, I'm like, surprised we didn't link to it. I, I, I yeah. You know, in our highly scientific clicking exercise. And in, if I recall, it had something like six thousand citations on Google, Google Scholar. Uh, that's that's what I recall. Something in that range. I might be off by a, a few, but. But but yeah, so it was. Uh, uh, significantly higher. I don't remember off the top of my head how high it was, but it was several times, several thousand for sure. Mm-hmm. And a very good paper. Yep. And so, so thanks, Karsten. <laughs> Although you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, we uh, absolutely love uh, hearing feedback. And it's now that we're 16 episodes in, starting to roll in a little bit. Um, uh, keep it coming. And because uh, uh, we, we do this largely uh, for ourselves because we think it's fun and looking into these topics, but uh, throwing out into the ether, hoping that someone else can find some value in it or interest in it or entertainment in it uh, is, is a pretty cool thing. And um, uh, if you want to look into um, past episodes, you can visit our website at uh, coreideas.com. Ajazioroski.ca, so coreideas.ajezioroski.ca. Uh, and until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we've had fun and uh, stay safe out there. Yep, yeah, take care. We'll see you next time. <laughs>